I think because of experiences in childhood where I felt like I couldn't control my circumstances, I've become very good at trying to exert control on my circumstances. And this year was also a reminder for how unhelpful it can be to strive for complete control since it's an illusion. It's not possible. So trying to cultivate some type of psychological and emotional safety net for when things outside of your control don't go the way you would like, or perhaps they go precisely the way you would not want them to go, has been very, very important. Hello, I'm Mariana Huffington, and welcome to What I've Learned. On this episode, Tim Ferriss on why he's given up pretending he's in control. When we started thinking about a podcast devoted to the life lessons people have learned over the past year, I knew we had to have Tim on. He's more relentlessly devoted to learning than anybody I know. He's like a learning machine. And to the great benefit of the rest of us, he's equally devoted to sharing what he's learned with his millions of fans. He's an author, an investor, a productivity guru, and the host of a podcast with over 600 million downloads. His five bestsellers include The 4-Hour Workweek, Tools of Titans, and Tribe of Mentors. Today, he's here to tell us why he's concentrating on his inner game these days and why he deleted all the social media apps from his phone. Tim, you've been known for all your incredibly wide range of advice and tips for millions of people. But you're also saying that through everything you do, you are looking at what you can learn, what pain there is to relieve or what goal there is to meet. So we've all been through a pretty amazing year. So let's start with what have you learned? I've learned how easy it is to take things for granted. It's really, I think, provided a very powerful and very helpful reminder for how big the little things are, the little conveniences, the little reassurances, the ability to hug friends and family, those tiny gestures, those tiny actions that we experience so often that they lose their impact is important. So I'd say uh, gratitude, quite frankly, has been a real focal point for me. And along with that, I think because of experiences in childhood where I felt like I couldn't control my circumstances, I've become very good at trying to exert control on my circumstances. And this year was also a reminder for how unhelpful it can be to strive for complete control since it's an illusion. It's not possible. So trying to cultivate some type of psychological and emotional safety net for when things outside of your control don't go the way you would like, or perhaps they go precisely the way you would not want them to go, has been very important. And uh, those are the first two that really come to mind. And that's really connected with the love that you and I have for the Stoics. And of course, that's their main teaching, right? That we cannot control external events. Ultimately, we can only control our reaction to what happens. So has that love for the Stoics, who are really pretty central for our understanding of this year, been amplified? Definitely. So I have new copies of Letters from a Stoic the compilation of the moral letters to Lucilius by Seneca. I've been revisiting books like Awareness by Anthony DeMello, 
who was a long since past, but Jesuit priest and also psychotherapist, which is very complimentary. I've been reading a decent amount of Krishnamurti, although I find him challenging to read. And uh, I, I find his strength of opinions both entertaining and very frustrating. But the point and the thread, I think, across all three of those being, we very often say we want to improve but don't actually want to improve <laughs> in the sense that we don't put in the necessary work to develop the habits of mind to provide us with the peace we claim we so want. And it's been a year of really trying, in my case, to put in place habits and practices, whether it's using Sam Harris's waking up app in the morning or journaling, using Byron Katie's The Work honestly, has been very helpful to see more clearly how my beliefs are driving my reality and to try to stress test those, which I think also comes back to the Stoics in a very big way. Yes, I've really spent a lot of time reflecting on, on Seneca's line that we suffer more in imagination than in reality. Because I've seen that all around me with the companies I work with, my children, as in times of uncertainty, how easy it is to move into negative fantasies and imagine the worst. And in fact, on my desk here, I have a quote from Montaigne who said, there were many terrible things in my life, but most of them never happened. <laughs> so how is your imaginary suffering? <laughs> Oh, it's always a hundred times more than the actual suffering, which whether imagined or real, it's real for a person, for me, subjectively, right? So, <laughs> so like the physiological cost and the sacrifices that you make if you're consumed by anxiety are very real, even if the dangers you imagine never come to pass. So that's where, for those people not familiar, Byron Katie's The Work is very helpful. You look at beliefs as thoughts you take to be true, you assume to be true, and then you scrutinize them. And there's a series of four or five questions, which include, can I know this is true? Can I know absolutely that this is true? What is my experience or how do I respond when I have this belief? Who would I be or what would I be like without this belief? And then you do what are called turnarounds. So let's just say your sister's name is Linda. And your belief that is causing you a lot of anger and strife is Linda is selfish. And you turn that around and you change that sentence to say Linda isn't selfish. And you would force yourself then to find, say, three pieces of evidence as a thought exercise to support that. And then you would say, I am selfish. And you would find three pieces of evidence to support that. And by doing that, the fear-setting type of approach that Seneca would recommend, examining your fears and scrutinizing them helps to defuse them. I am also one of those people, maybe this is strange, who is really annoyed and bothered by the paper cuts of life, the little things. But I do very well in crisis situations because the priorities for me become so clear. It's very easy to make decisions. It's the little stuff which ironically creates the big suffering in my life generally. I love what you said also, beyond Baron Katie's work, which is that um, sometimes you take your worries and your anxieties and you put them in a metaphorical altar. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I kind of love that because there is a kind of offering. Yes. Uh, so how does that work? And what kind of relief does that give you? Well, you know, I'd love to hear you expand on that a little bit because... I suppose I could take what you just said and look at it a little bit differently, which is 
there's a risk of enshrining our beliefs as fact, right? And treating our beliefs like scripture, the inalterable word of reality. And when you start to pull at the corners <laughs> and poke and prod them a bit, it becomes pretty clear that they're not actually based in any type of objective reality. And I mean, I do think there's a benefit. Jack Cornfield has been very helpful for me in this respect. For those people who don't know the name, he's a very well-known Buddhist and mindfulness teacher, also a, a clinical psychologist, incredibly gifted, very skilled, who might have you envision your emotion or your belief as an object and you visualize putting that on an altar, right? Thanking it for its contributions instead of pushing it away, instead of hating it. And that allows you to sort of reconcile yourself with a part of yourself, which I think is a very powerful technique also seen very well in something called IFS, internal family systems. And Dick Schwartz used a lot in psychotherapy for trauma that I found personally very useful. I use it in the sense of offering it, meaning instead of beating myself up for being stupid and being anxious about that or all the kind of self-judgments that I may come up with because there is a part of me that knows better and can't stand the part of me that doesn't. So it kind of <laughs> reconciles me with that part of me that's still not up to par. <laughs> Uh, according to the perfectionist part, including spiritually perfectionist. That's kind of the ultimate thing for me is the kind of spiritual bypass we so often do when, because we recognize there's a higher reality in which everything makes sense and in which we don't argue with reality, etc. But there is another part of us, the basic self, the child part, that is arguing with reality or is anxious and we need to acknowledge it. So that's why the idea of offering it rather than beating it up <laughs> really resonated with me. Right. Yeah. I think we're entirely on the same page, at least in my experience. If there are parts of you that you really can't stand, that you are constantly fighting with, I mean, you have an internal civil war going on and they're obviously going to be costs to that. There's going to be a lot of collateral damage. And I didn't appreciate that fully until the last few years. Tim, hold that thought. I can't wait to continue this conversation and we'll do that in just a minute. This year of so much uncertainty and anxiety has been a hard one for sleep, especially with so many of our routines disrupted. But that's exactly why we need to prioritize our sleep now more than ever, because getting enough sleep is what allows us to be more effective at managing stressful, anxious, and disruptive times. That's why we've teamed up with Audible, the sponsor of this podcast, to create the Audible Sleep Collection. It's a series of bedtime stories, meditations, and other sound experiences from Nick Jonas, Sean Diddy Combs, Gabby Bernstein, Sarah Oster, and many more to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up fully recharged and ready to take on whatever challenges the day brings you. Remember, a great day starts the night before. And stay tuned for a preview of one of my favorite Audible sleep experiences at the end of the podcast. So, Tim, 
What's been very interesting for me as I've been reading and listening to what you've been saying over the last year is that you've moved from your priority being productivity to focusing more on what you called working on your inner game. And many, many years ago, I got to know Tim Galloway, you remember, who wrote The Inner Game of Tennis and The Inner Game of Golf. In fact, I was lucky to be taught tennis by him, which was quite an amazing experience. So I've always been kind of obsessed with The Inner Game. So I'm really interested to see about how that transition is working for you. I think I'm as at peace more at peace than I've ever been before. Maybe I'm just getting older and getting worn out. I don't know. But I think that it really has to do with prioritizing the inner game over the outer game. And that is to say, it's possible to be very good at a lot of things. It's possible to be considered very successful at a lot of things. To check off all of the external boxes that you think should make you happy should bring you peace of mind, should bring you spaciousness, and still feel highly anxious to still have insomnia, to still be crippled by self-doubt and self-loathing. This is entirely possible, not just possible, but common. And I think in the process of looking at my own background and to really examine the narratives and the stories that have had a grip on my behavior, and that have dictated my decisions and how I feel about myself and things around me has been very rewarding. And I don't think that that's something you have to wait to do after you've achieved some modicum of success. I, in fact, think that I would have spared myself a lot of suffering and probably achieved even better results had I put that inner game, as you put it, at the top of the pyramid, not at the bottom. So that emotional health kit that you are building What's the one thing that's the most important part of the toolkit? If you're going to optimize one thing, I think optimize for sleep. And if you do that, you're going to automatically make a lot of very good decisions. So I use something called the Aura Ring to look at heart rate variability and look at recovery indices and things like that. I find the Aura Ring to be very helpful. If I had to pick one thing, it would be sleep. I agree. Here's my Aura Ring. Oh, look at that. I wear it day and night. <laughs> yeah, nice. Now, what about meditation? You and I have talked about it through the years, and uh, you started with a certain aversion to it, and uh, gradually <laughs> you started embracing it. Uh, so where are we now on your meditation journey? I bounce around. I suppose I'm a, a dilettante in that way, but I do meditate consistently. I meditated this morning. Right now, I'm using Sam Harris's Waking Up app. I find it incredibly well done. If I don't have access to the app for some reason, I do use Transcendental Meditation, which I find very helpful. And I do things, often in an exercise capacity, that I also consider to be meditation. So if it's swimming or anything that can involve counting, I don't think you need to be sitting on a cushion in a quiet room to meditate. And I think you can absorb many of the benefits of what people think of as meditation by doing any activity that might put you into a state of non-mind, if that makes any sense. So I, I try to focus for myself on the state and the awareness I'm trying to cultivate, not the vehicle. So that's where I am right now. 
And I'll tell you one more thing, Ariana, that you might find funny. This is true for a lot of my friends. They feel like if they're not redlining and doing something very difficult, if it's not hard for them, then they're not trying hard enough, if that, if that makes any sense. You know, they really, they're like, you know, unless I'm feeling the burn in exercise or unless I am straining with meditation, I'm not trying hard enough. And I've taken the opposite approach. I've tried to be very easy and gentle on myself. And at least with meditation, I find that actually to be incredibly beneficial. It's not hard for me to be hard on myself. I'm very good at that. You know, the, the real challenge is for me to be a, a gentler with myself, which doesn't mean having low standards. It just means like, look, you don't need to kick the dog if it's asleep, like relax. Like, you know, like there's, there are other ways of, of approaching it. So those are a few of my thoughts. Well, not just a few of your thoughts, but a real shift in your journey, which seems to come together with your girlfriend and what you've talked about, love and maybe even having children and a lot of things that you were unequivocally opposed to. So a lot of these things seem to be coming together. So where are you on the love-children journey? I am excited by the possibility of building a family. I am excited about it. Now, I want to try to be transparent in the sense that I'm also in my 40s and maybe there's just a point where biology overrides and you can come up with all sorts of intelligent, rationalized explanations for why you've suddenly turned a corner. I think there's probably part of that where it's like, oh yeah, I'm halfway through my life. I'm going to die at some point. But I think in addition to that, I was hesitant to think about kids because I, I didn't think, I wasn't confident that I would be a good father. And I felt like it is intrinsically a selfish decision to bring kids into the world. Like you're, you are having kids because you want to have kids. And I wanted to make sure for myself that I felt confident I wouldn't just take all of my disabling stories and inflict them on someone. Furthermore, I wanted to really try to assess, like, do I want to have kids or do I want to be a parent? And those are different things. I think we've seen this in COVID. So a lot of people with kids are like, you're not entitled to an opinion, but I'll voice one anyway, which is I think during COVID, we've seen that like, a lot of people who have kids don't actually want to be parents. I don't think that's fair to the kids. So I've really wanted to ask myself repeatedly, like, are you really committed to this path even if things go very wrong, right? Or sideways, like if you have a kid with developmental disabilities or special needs, like this is a lifelong commitment and like your job is to give them love, not the other way around. So are you willing to accept that assignment? And I've taken it really seriously. And I, I'm at a point where I feel like I am able to say yes to that. And was that partly because of what you said at the beginning, how COVID has gotten you to focus more on the things that we took for granted? I think that's part of it. I think constant reminders that you can die also helps. Um, <laughs> and, being, and being in love too. And being in love, yes, yes. <laughs> because yes, it's hard to, to just want to have children in the abstract, although trust me, I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're yeah. so right about that. It's a lifelong commitment. My youngest daughter, whom you've met, Isabella, was hit by a bike in New York, has been suffering for three years with debilitating headaches. She wrote a book about it. I'll send it to you, an Audible original, on how the chronic pain 
led to her spiritual awakening again in terms of things we can control and things we cannot control. And chronic pain for millions of people is one of the things we cannot control. But for me, as a parent, I recognize that it's not as if when your children leave the house and go to college, (laughs) you are done parenting. It is a lifelong journey, but totally worth it, Tim. Let me absolutely reinforce your newfound desire to become a parent. You know, one of the things that I loved that you said recently is sometimes I wrestle with my demons and sometimes we just snuggle. (laughs) (laughs) I have to give my mom credit. She gave me a pin to uh, put on my sweatshirt, which said exactly that. So that was a birthday present from my mom, who I think is, well, I don't think, I know she's certainly had front row seats to watching me grapple and metabolize and navigate a lot of changes in my life and changes in thinking and changes in orientation over the last few years. And much of it has been very, very difficult. But the wrestling with the demons versus snuggling with your demons, I think is a cute way to remember something really important, which is that parts work we were talking about earlier. And for those who might want to explore this in book form, there are a lot of books that touch on this, but Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock is an excellent book. It has a very generic, boring title, but the book itself I found very, very powerful. And it was recommended to me by a PhD in neuroscience who is very anti-woo-woo, who I never in a million years would have expected to pick up a book like that. And she wholeheartedly recommended it to me. And I've since recommended it to many, many, many people. So yes, if you can... See if you can snuggle instead of struggle, if you can. At least try it on. I love that. And it's all connected to this whole theme of greater self-acceptance, self-compassion, which uh, seems to have been a theme of this pandemic year for you and for, for many of us. And I want to end with some of your rituals because I love your morning and evening rituals. And I have found that rituals have become more important than ever during this year. So how have your rituals changed or what has stayed the same? What have been the most important morning and end of day rituals? Well, the first one that came to mind was taking Zoom classes twice a week, first thing in the morning with my girlfriend for acro yoga. So acro yoga is a partner practice. You put your partner on your feet, you do all sorts of acrobatic moves. And really what it is at the end of the day, people can look up acro yoga and see videos of this. There's a great Instagram account called Duo Die, D-U-O-D-I-E. Fundamentally, it is play. It's kind of like what you see chimpanzee mothers doing with their little chimpanzee babies, like putting the baby on the feet and moving it around. It's a very playful form of exercise that gets you in shape, but it also really helped us to find some levity and humor where things were otherwise very serious and very scary. And I have friends who have died. I have friends who have serious medical complications. We have family members who have died. I mean, it's very intense backdrop. So to have two mornings per week where we had physical touch and physical play, even if we wanted to kill each other five minutes beforehand, was really helpful. And that's my that's my dog in the background. If we end up with some audio verite, that's Molly for anyone wondering. So that that has been really critical. A lot of the most helpful rituals have had a physical component. 
So, you know, Molly's in the background. So taking Molly for walks together and making time for that cooking together has been really key. And the meditation practice has been really, really critical. Other morning activities that people may not wish to replicate would be uh, cold plunges. I have a small pool in the backyard, so I will do cold plunges in the pool, which uh, used to be prescribed for anti-depression, in fact, and melancholy back in, say, Picasso's day, cold baths. So I, I do find that cold plunges are very, very helpful. You got to be careful. So people listening, this is not medical advice. Don't give yourself frostbite. <laughs> Those are a few that come together for me. And what happened to the rituals around your phone? Because you were very prophetic about the dangers of our addiction to our phones, to social media, and you had started, oh, yeah. you know, digital Sabbaths and putting your phone away before you slept. Where are you on that journey? Oh, those are, those are still in place. And, and actually, I've added a few things to that. About four or five months ago, I deleted uh, all social media apps from my phone. I think social media is incredibly dangerous. It's sort of a tool that has become a master in a way. Just as you are training the algorithm for each of these platforms, that algorithm is then training you. And uh, that type of feedback loop can be very corrosive and narrowing in your worldview and perspectives. And it ends up, by virtue of these feedback loops, also tending to push you where you will get most upset. And for all of those reasons and more, I deleted all the social media apps from my phone. However, because there is utility to social media as a broadcasting platform, I will still use it. But for instance, I will, in the case of Instagram, use an intermediary. So I use an app called OnlyPult, like Catapult, which allows me to post to Instagram without going to Instagram. So I'm not able to consume any content through OnlyPult. I'm only allowed to one-way broadcast. So I'm able to share things I care about. I'm able to share beauty I find in the world. I'm able to make public service announcements as I did during COVID very early, first week of February. I'm able to be engaged without being held hostage and consumed. And I will still, in fairness, if, for instance, I post something and then want to look at the comments for that specific post, I will then go through the desktop to look at those responses. But it, it offers a hurdle, right? I can't as easily just get trapped on social media sitting on the toilet. I'm like, oh, I'll check it for two seconds. And then like 45 minutes later, I'm like, well, I'm still in the bathroom. What am I doing? You know, I no longer have that experience, which I think is probably good for my quality of life and productivity. Uh, Tim, I'm so grateful to you. Really, you are a born teacher. And in the course of our conversation, we have at least half a dozen book recommendations, app recommendations to deal with our addiction to apps, called bath recommendations. We're going to put them all on the site so people can go through them. I just love this conversation. I wish we were having it over dinner, but I hope we will soon. We will soon. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for making the time. It's really nice to see your face and to hear your voice. And so hopefully we'll have a chance to share a glass or a bottle or two bottles of wine <laughs> at some point. It'll be nice to see, to see you in person again soon. Before we wrap up, I'd like to leave you with a micro step inspired by the conversation that you can take with you. Coming off our discussion about putting our emotions and our self-judgments onto a virtual altar, 
Here is a micro step that can help us be more mindful about our daily worries. And it's easy. All you do is set aside a specific time each day or each week dedicated to worry time. Reflecting on our worries without needing to solve them helps us see patterns of worries that appear again and again. Once we identify them, we can much more easily prioritize making any changes we need to make. Thank you so much for being with us. Join us next time on What I've Learned. People don't believe me when I tell them that when I have a hard time falling asleep, my go-to solution is Sean D.G. Combs' sleep meditation. It's called Honor Yourself, and it's part of Thrive's collaboration with Audible to create sleep experiences that will deliver your best sleep during this difficult time. The stories have no beginning, middle, or end, so you won't stay up to hear what happens next. Here, Didi guides you through a deeply relaxing meditation that will allow you to say goodbye to the day and wake up refreshed and ready to take on the challenges of the next one. It's time to slow down and into a period of deep, restorative rest. This is Diddy. I'll be guiding you through a meditation that will help you slow down and drift off into the peaceful, restorative sleep that you deserve. We're going to start by setting a vision for our time together. Before you start anything in this life, you want to have a vision of yourself experiencing that thing. And right here, right now, your vision is of you in a non-judging, effortless, calming state of sleep. If you're not asleep yet and want to hear the sleep track in its entirety, go to audible.com slash thrive to start your free trial tonight.